Ah, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I didn't plan on doing this, but I don't know, the words just seemed appropriate. Um, so the Lord has been really surprising lately. And, um, you know, we've been, uh, we've been, he's been giving us weird provisions, foundational provisions. And it all started uh, back in 2019, 2020 with this building. And we forget about this place because we're here every week. But, you know, this is a miracle for me, period. There's no other way around that. Um, and it just seems like he's building stuff slowly for us. And things keep falling into our hands that, that we're surprised about. Um, when we did the worship night, uh, Cindy and I were talking and praying-ish, saying, you know, we're having all these people come for the worship night, and our microphones are 30 years old. It'd be really nice if we had new microphones. We didn't make an announcement about it or anything like that. We just kind of talked amongst ourselves and went to God, and lo and behold, somebody bought us three new microphones, which is awesome. And... Um, one of the struggles we had with being online, as well as being here, is uh, our sound equipment is a bit old. Um, we upgraded to an older board when we moved here, uh, an analog board that John and I had to take apart and try to rebuild uh, to make it sound better. Um, and, and while it was a great board and the Lord was good, it was limiting. And when you start streaming, you run into issues with analog ports. And I'm not going to get into the technology of it, but you're splitting channels and it's kind of complicated. And, and so our stream never really sounded that good. Um, and we knew the only way to fix that was to upgrade our soundboard was step one into a digital soundboard. And a digital soundboard is expensive, really expensive. And it's on the list, it's been on the list, but there are a lot of other things that are on the list above it that we need to do, like finish the women's bathroom. And so we did the, the worship night, and one of the pastors that was here wandered in the back, looked at the board, came up to me and said, you guys want a digital board? He goes, I'll make you a deal. He goes, we have a spare one. He goes, we'll give it to you if you guys are willing to do a seed offering back towards us. He goes, I don't care how much it is, whatever, whatever you can afford. And I said, well, we can't afford much. I don't want to be offensive. And he goes, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so he dropped off this, it's small, but for us it's massive. And we spent most of the week, John and I spent a few days, and I was here on Tuesday messing with it, trying to get it set up, and these things are complicated. Um, so today, that's what you heard coming through the digital board. Um, hopefully you noticed a difference. Definitely a difference on the stream. I went downstairs to listen to the stream, and it sounded a lot uh, clearer in my mind. Um, but... Um, it was a huge provision. The board that we received is about $2,800 new. Uh, and the condition it's currently in is somewhere between $15,000 and $2,000. And um, it just, uh, Cathedral of Praise just blessed us with it. So what we're going to do, and I'm not doing this today, but what we're going to do next month is probably just put a notice out there like, hey, we want to take an offering for them to say thank you and whatever the Lord puts on your heart thrilled. We're not going to give him $2,800 or $1,500. I have no end. I kind of looked at him and I'm like, well, I might get a couple hundred. So just, you know, I'm kind of reminding you of that. But the Lord has been giving these little snippets of grace over the last two years, over the last two months, 
little foundational pieces that he seems to be building within us. Um, and, and some of those foundational pieces don't make a whole lot of sense, but I know in the back of my mind, this is stuff that's going to help us grow. This is stuff that's preparing for us for when the Lord, whatever the Lord's about to do. And I, with the words that came out today, it just kind of reminded me that sometimes we forget about those things. It's so easy to forget about what God has done. It's so easy to take for granted the little things that He does uh, without noticing Without noticing and so I wanted to notice it, guys, today. The Lord, uh, His presence is here, that He's still uh, still faithful, that He's still providing, and still doing incredible things with us, through us, for us, which is kind of awesome. You get a chance to peek over the wall where John is, and you can see this tiny little thing that um, is incredibly powerful. An object lesson in the midst. Hey, prior to Easter, uh, we took this journey and did a personal spiritual health check of our lives. We looked at the different areas of our lives and and asked, you know, spiritually speaking, what do they look like? You know, our uh, our hearts. What's our first love? Our minds. Are we in the Word? Are we learning? Our eyes. Uh, you know, we looked through our entire bodies. And we did this personal checklist. Um, and, and, you know, it's good to do things like that. It's good to be concerned about our personal spiritual walk, about how things are going, how we're doing. But there's one other area that we should be concerned about, and that's how healthy we are corporately, as a church, as a family. Sometimes we forget to do that. I own a bunch of old cars. Um, we have a really nice newish van, and then everything else we own is old. I have an old Honda that I drive, um, my uh, one son has an old Chevy that he drives, and my other son has a really old, like older than him, Honda that he drives. And that Honda is just mind-boggling, um, because we're shocked that the thing is still going, we're shocked that the body is still held together, granted with duct tape and... and, uh, and uh, and zip ties in some cases, but we're shocked. And every now and then we've got to put some money in that Honda. And we, we tend to focus on one area. In the last year or so, it's been brakes. We've had major brake issues with that car. Uh, it goes forward really well, but stopping was always a challenge. And so um, over a one-year period, we pretty much rebuilt the whole brake system, one way or another. And uh, the car was actually parked for a few months because... Um, that's how things work in my family. If you can't afford to fix it, you park the car uh, and you wait. You can't fix it because we've got others and we start shuffling around. And so finally we got the car fixed and we had to rebuild the brakes and put a couple hundred bucks into it. And I got a guy who does all the work for me. And we got all excited because finally we got this part of the car fixed. The car's like brand new, right? It's good to go. And then a week later they drove to the church and uh, my one son said, you know, the car was kind of pulling the side well, really? That's weird. And we walk out of there and it's pulling to the side because one of the tires is flat. And one of the tires is flat because it wore uneven and it literally ripped a hole in the tire. I tell this story not to like make you think people need tires, but it's amazing how we can focus on these individual parts, but 
even though one of our individual parts within the church may be healthy, if there's something wrong, it, it shuts down the whole thing. You know? It, it shut down the whole thing. We thought we had the car running, but now we've got a flat, so not the world when we're in donut. And that's how church can be too. We can focus on our lives personally, but if there's a part of our church that's unhealthy, that's not running right, it could cause problems for the entire body. I mean, there's health issues there too if you want to go down that road. And so sometimes we need to take the time and look at how things are going corporately. Now throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus teaching and, 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 and we look at those teachings and we really understand them personally. But, but there's questions about the corporate. Is there anything, you wonder, in the Bible that tells us what Jesus perhaps wanted His church to look like? That's what I want to do next. This month. I want to just take some time and ask the question, what does Jesus want His church to look like? Now, where do you think we find the answer? Somehow, some way, Jesus would tell us what He wants His church to look like. Maybe He could send us a note and, and just say, you know, this is what I anticipate my church, this is what I want my church to look like. Lo and behold, we have that. Jesus actually sent letters to seven churches in the Bible. And we still have those letters. They're still here. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Revelations chapter 1. Revelations now, Revelations is a scary book. I know it's a scary book. Some of you are like, oh no, he's going into Revelations. And some of you are going, oh yes, he's going into Revelations. I work with a guy who is like so fixated on the book of Revelations and he's been yelling at me for months, why aren't you preaching out of Revelations? Don't you know the end times is all around us? And I'm like, yeah, every day is one day closer to the end times. No, this should be the only thing you preach, period. And I'm like, Revelations is scary because it's a hard book for us to understand. There's a lot of imagery in there. There's a lot of, of, of pictures and stories and, and things that we struggle with as we look like or as we look through. We've all heard teachings all over the place on what Revelations means. The end of the world, the rapture, God's judgment. For most of us, that's what we think the entire book's all about. But here's the thing. The end of the world stuff doesn't start until chapter. Okay? And we're not going to be looking at that today. If you want to do an in-depth study of Revelations, do it. Instead, we're going to go look at the first three chapters of Revelation. Chapters which deal entirely with a letter that was dictated by Jesus to John for seven churches modern-day church. So we're going to start today at Revelations chapter 1, verse 9. John says this, I, John, your brother, and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Bergamion, to Thyresia, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Lacedonia, or Lacedicia. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing, or were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will, uh, what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Imagery. We read it and we kind of get confused. Lampstands, lights, swords coming out of mouths. John wrote this. Uh, this occurred somewhere around 96 A.D. John is uh, arrested. He's in exile. He's on the island of Patmos. And um, we're kind of towards the end of John. And on, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, John's in prayer. All of a sudden, he has this visitation, this vision. And I'm always amazed at John's response. John's overwhelmed. What he sees, what occurs, absolutely overwhelmed. It fits in with the picture of the prophets from the Old Testament. When we look at, at Jeremiah, when we look at Isaiah, when they first um, encounter the Lord, they're overwhelmed. And John is no different. And he sees this image around him. Seven lamps, uh, lamps things. Uh, he sees Jesus walking amongst them. He sees uh, seven uh, stars, seven lights. The question is, what does all that mean? Jesus paints this interesting picture. He's walking amongst the seven lampstands. The lampstands are the churches, the seven churches of God. Jesus is walking amongst those churches. The church is the light of the world. Christ is with the church. The seven stars, Jesus says, are the angels of the church. Now, the mission of the angels, scholars tend to think, since the messages are written to the angels of each one of the churches, scholars seem to believe that those those angels, those messengers, they might actually be the pastors, the leaders, the elders of the church. Talking about the picture. And there's this incredible imagery if you think about it. Jesus walking with the church, holding its leaders, holding its elders in the palm of its hand. And for me, that, that's a personal revelation because there's moments as, as I lead this church, as I've been uh, doing this for, for so many years with Cindy, that we feel alone that you feel like it's just you. But this picture of Jesus there with the leaders, with the elders, holding them in the palm of his 
understand, knowing that Jesus is holding us in the palm of his hand, that his presence is here. Something, something that causes peace in the that, no matter what that Jesus is about to dictate seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. Some are going to be encouraging, and some are going to be a rebuke. But all of them will have direction in it. All of them will have something for us to understand. John, can you put up the first map? So when we read these books, we sometimes think these places are like pretend, right? But, but this is in modern-day Turkey, okay? You have seven churches there. They're all there on the west side of Turkey. Some of those cities still exist today. And what's, what's fascinating here is the proximity of all these churches. They're near each other. They're, they're related to one another. Paul more than likely planted many of these churches. Ephesus which we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this summer. However, these messages that Jesus gives, they're not just for the seven, they're for all the churches. As we hear these messages, Jesus always ends, let him, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. This isn't just to one church, this is to all so within these letters, we can begin to see where Jesus' heart is for the church, what he's looking for in his church. And because of that, we really need to take notice of what he's saying here. There's, some, there's things here for us to learn as a church, what it should look like for us, what we should look like. Today we're going to start that journey by looking at the first two now the first letter is to, church, to the church in Ephesus. Do you got the bigger one? Yeah, Ephesus. You see Ephesus there? Kind of on the far right, bottom-ish? That's the first one today, Ephesus. We're also going to look at Smyrna later. Jesus says this, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have, uh, have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. Church. The one who is victorious, I will give the right in the tree of life, which is in the paradise. Picture this opening. Jesus is walking amongst the lamb, holding the leader in his palm. The one who sees, he's the one who's going to judge. 
this is an important image for Ephesians to get. Because we see that this is a church that understands understands theology. We see this in verse 1 and 2. They test all who come to them. They are sticklers for true doctrine. They are sticklers to remove all heresy from them. They are sticklers to remove false teaching from them. And we see this in much of the church today. Constantly studying, constantly testing, constantly making sure our doctrine is correct. And I'm sure many of us can name people who have challenged us on something. And some of it may be some of the silliest stuff in the world. I, I, was, I was speaking with a, a pastor colleague of mine who was telling me a story of once they had a, a conference at their church. And they brought this teacher in. And I forget what the topic was. Something to do with prophetic or deliverance or something like that. And so when he was on session, he said the stuff was really good. But then they would take a break and he would kind of do these side teachings. And he said the first side teaching was this weird thing about how we needed to increase our diet with nuts and all this other stuff because there was something spiritual in how we ate our diet. And he kind of let that go and said, okay, that's just weird, but whatever. And then the next teaching uh, on the side, when they took a break, he started getting in saying, you know, you need to understand that the only true translation of the Bible is the King James translation. And if you're reading any other translation, then, then you're definitely in heresy and, and you, you, know, you cannot learn from God anymore. And uh, this church did not necessarily preach out of the King James translation. And and the pastor came up to me and said, or the pastor came up to him and said, you know, stay on top. There's so many side thoughts, so many side ideas that we can get uh, become sticklers. And you know, most of us in the vineyard, we're not known as theologians. We don't focus necessarily on theology and doctrine here. And so we think, well, a lot of this probably doesn't us. But we have traditions. We have beliefs. We have ideas on how we should worship, on how we should pray, how we should minister. I mean, we teach our ministry team you know, how to pray for people, the five-step model, the big stickler. You pray for someone with your eyes open. One thing they can never figure out. And we have understanding and reasoning for why we tell people to pray with their eyes open. There's the old saying in the vineyard, you know you have a vineyard person because they worship with their eyes closed and they pray with their eyes open. And those are our traditions. Those are our traditions. But sometimes those traditions take on more weight than they need to have. And, and we use those traditions as ways to divide ourselves. We begin to look harshly at others who don't do the things that we do. after service, they don't say ministry in front of apostasy. We look harshly. And it's very easy to fall into that trap, to find ourselves there. And when we get there, we, we are in the place where the Ephesians are. We are standing alongside of them. Notice Jesus' rebuke in verses 4 and 5. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. See, doctrine, tradition, and styles, they all have ways of taking over our thoughts, of taking over our lives. 
But for those of you who are following Christ, it wasn't doctrine, it wasn't liturgical styles that made you follow Christ. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. You didn't go to a church and say, wow, I really like that liturgy. I think I want to give my entire life. No. You came here and said, wow, I've met Jesus. And He has affected me. He has transformed me. And I want to give my life to Him. But it's so easy for us to forget about that the longer we follow Christ. It's so easy to forget about Jesus and focus on all the things. It's so easy to forget about Jesus. So as, as a church, we're called out by Jesus to remember that. To remember our first love. That He brought us here. That He gathered us together. And if we're not focused on Jesus, if we're, if we're not focused on our first love, then there's a promise from Jesus here. If we're not focused on Him, He's one. He goes, I'm going to take your lampstand away. I'm going to take your church away. You know what the sign of a dying church is? It's not size. Never size. You think it's size. It's not. It's not finances. It's not any of that stuff. Sign of a dying church is a sign as a church that begins to focus on upholding traditions or upholding side issues or upholding things like that and not following Christ. It's a church that is so focused on what they've always done that they absolutely miss what Jesus is doing right now. And if Jesus is doing something and it's not what they used to do, then they're not going to do it. That's the sign of the dying church. But notice the promise for those that follow Him, that make Jesus their first love, their first focus. It's not death, but life. Jesus brings back the imagery out of Genesis. The tree of life. The thing that, that sin separated us from. If Jesus is our first love, then we get to partake in that. The tree of life. It's Jesus being our first love corporately. We to experience life corporately. Now, let's look at the next love. Starting in verse 8 in Revelations 2. The angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who was first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second. John, can you pop the map back up this morning? Smyrna is just north of Ephesus. Right there. This is an interesting picture because we have a church that seems to be doing okay. There's no rebuke here from Jesus, right? Perhaps we look at this and say, well, they must be doing everything right. 
Then look at what's happening to them. Verse 10, do not fear, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Most of us struggle with something like that. We look at struggles in people's lives. We look at when they're under attack. And the first thing that usually comes to mind is they must be doing something to bring that on to themselves. They must be doing something wrong to bring on that kind of attack. Somehow those struggles must be God's judgment on them. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that deals with this idea. It's called the Book of Job. The Book of Job is this really confusing book. It's actually one of the oldest books in the Bible, as far as when it was written. The story of Job is that Job's a righteous man. He does everything right. So much so that he's got God's favor. And there's this meeting that happens in heaven. I don't understand it, but it happens. And Satan shows up at the meeting. And God looks at Satan and says, look at my servant Job. Isn't he? He does everything right. And Satan looks at him and goes, of course he does, because you bless him. Don't bless him anymore. And he'll curse you. And so God goes, okay. And all of a sudden everything goes wrong. All of his kids die. All of his wealth is taken. And then Satan comes back. God goes, look, he didn't even curse me. He goes, well, of course he didn't touch his power. So God goes, okay, go for it. So he comes, gets all these skin diseases, pictures, really disgusting. It's a broken pottery to scrape off. Yeah. Yeah. Don't ask me why, I don't know. Okay? There's a lot of life. It's one of But then the story goes on, Job's sort of sitting out in the middle of nowhere. And his friends come to cheer him up, right? Because that's what friends do. His friends come to cheer him up. And they cheer him up by saying, man, you must have really messed with God. You must be a terrible sinner. Just repent, all right? We know that you're a sinner because look at all this stuff that's happened to you. Job tries to defend himself. The story ends with God basically saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to deal with. Job gets But that attitude, man, it comes on us so easily. We look at people and we think, it's got to be some secret. It's interesting as we look at churches. There's got to be something that's wrong in that church. We have this view that the bigger the church, the healthier, better, blessings upon it. The smaller the church, it's got to be screwed up or something wrong with it. God's curse. And that's the comparison we have here. We have Ephesus, which we'll learn later, is an incredibly wealthy city. And we study the book of Ephesus, Ephesus later. Things happen there. It's a big church. And then we got Smyrna. It's a small church. It's being persecuted. The picture of persecution is that they're being persecuted for not holding on to the Jewish traditions. They're being persecuted. So the assumption is 
that Ephesus must be doing everything right and Smyrna must be doing everything wrong. That's not the case. That's not what the case. Notice, Jesus rebukes Ephesus, but he tells Smyrna, hold on, the blessings are coming. Hold on. And the same goes for us corporately and personally. Doing it right doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be easy. Following Jesus doesn't mean that everything's going to happen in a wonderful way, that your life is going to be beautiful and rainbows and unicorns. That doesn't mean that. Sometimes it's going to be hard. And history tells us that this is what happened in Smyrna. There was tremendous persecution. Church history tells us about the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. He was martyred on February 23rd, uh, 155 A.D. He was told to curse the name of Jesus and they wouldn't kill him. And instead he said this, 86 years have I served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they killed him at the stake. Notice how Jesus addresses them. First and the last, he who died and came to life, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second. Jesus comes to them with compassion and a promise that he's always there, even through death. He's going to see them through all of this. And that's the promise he gives to us. Success is not based on what we've obtained be it people, be it stuff, be it blessing. Instead, success is based on obedience. And that's where Smyrna is commended. There's a parable that, that is really interesting. Somewhat significant. And it's the parable of the talents. Landowner gives ten to one, and seven to another, and one to a third. And they all do different things with it. The ones with ten and, and they multiply. One with one is fearful and he buries it and gives it back to his master. Here, here's what you gave me. I give it back to you. The ones with multiples uh, get get a blessing at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. They were faithful. So that's that's what we're after in our spiritual walk. That's what we're after as a church. It's not about how big, how flashy, how, how much we can grow, how many seats we can fill, how big our budget is. It's about faithfulness. We're being faithful to what God has called us to be. And that's, that's where our, our that's where God has Jesus. There's something we can learn from these two letters. It's not perfect doctrine or style that Jesus is looking for. It's not even signs of growth or blessing. Instead, he's looking for people who are madly in love with him first and foremost. So in love with him that are willing to give up comfort, willing to give up blessing, anything just to be with him. They're willing to be obedient. The 
question for us as a church is simple. Are we remembering our first love? Is what we do uh, being motivated uh, not by our correctness, but out of our love for obedience to Jesus? John 15.10 says this, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Later, in that same paragraph, he says this, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. See, faithfulness and obedience are not about what we do. Faithfulness and obedience are about how we love. How we take care of one another. How we love God. How we love each other. And that's what makes the parable of the talent so easy. The man with one talent didn't want to waste it. He didn't want to lose it. He focused on himself, so he hid it. Consider that for a minute. He hid it. Jesus tells us the whole law, prophets, and the people of God. All the crap that knows about. experience God's love, we can hide it and bury it and keep it for ourselves. We can give it away. That's how God's kingdom advances. It advances through love. So what's our focus? What's our focus? Is it about being right? Is it about what we look like to the outside world? What we look like to the Christian community around us? Is it about the avoidance of suffering? Or, or perhaps the increase of our comfort? Because if it's about any of those, then our first love is no longer Jesus. Our first love is us. It's ourselves. But if our focus is on Jesus, on His command, on loving those around us, then we begin to become the church that Jesus desires us I just want to end with one picture, one final picture. It's really easy to say, love God, love people, but what does that really look like? It's a great catchphrase, we make t-shirts on it, but what does it really look like? There's a parable, really uncomfortable, Jesus tells in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. The picture is... Uh, starts like this, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate people one from another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you are blessed by My Father. Take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. They go on and say, Lord, when did we do all this stuff? Jesus says, you did it and you did it to one of the least of those amongst you. You did it. Then he says in verse 40, Truly I tell you what I... Oh, 
Pero ha caído la vida de tu uno de los hijos He goes on and tells the goats, you didn't do all this. And this is a really uncomfortable parable for us, especially evangelical. We don't like this. We want to get it all. The salvation is by faith alone, and wait, there's works involved here. We're going to do this. James says, faith without works is dead. This parable always cracks me up, especially in today's society. For the last few years, all I keep hearing is, I don't want to be sheep anymore. I'm not a sheep. I can do that. I'm a gives us a picture of what church, what Jesus desires for the church. Be willing to sacrifice their comfort for their own. Not focused on themselves, focused on those around them. And that's how they show Feed the hungry, give the thirsty, invite the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick, visit those who are sick, visit the So, as we go today and wrap up, I want you to consider two things. That's what Jesus desires for his church. What would we need to do differently? What would we need to change to become that church that Jesus loves? Be the church that truly loves God truly loves To be the church that Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. What do we need to We're not there yet. What would we need to do differently? And while it's easy to look at the church and see what we would need to change, just like it's easy to look at a car and fix one thing and not the other, a community is made of people. Community is made of individuals. So easy to point at the church and say, the church should be doing this. But guess what? You guys are the church! So the second question, what would you need to do? Or what would you need to become to see those changes That's a challenging question. I don't know that. I can tell you it's not to start a new program. It's something in heart. That first love begins to pour out of us. And we're more concerned about following Christ than anything else. See, becoming the church that, he, that Jesus desires us to be all begins when we as individuals begin to live out our lives demonstrating Jesus' love to the world around us. When we do that, we're no longer fixated on doctrine.
Lord, we we thank you that you've given us these letters. That you've given us your word. That you've spoken to us. And and even though it's sometimes in confusing ways, it's very clear what you're doing. Now, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, our desire is to be that church. To be that church where you are our first love. To be that church where your love is pouring out of us to the community around us. To be that church where you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, our desire is not to be the biggest church in town. Our desire is not to be the richest church in town. Our desire is not to be the the flashiest church or the in-church in town. Our desire is to be the church that shares your love Lord, you've been doing so much in this church. You've been building us uh, at a foundational level. Step by step, brick by brick, piece by piece. Lord, we know you're not doing this because of some tremendous uh, favor that we have, some tremendous uh, gifting that we have. Lord, you're doing this because you love us. And Lord, as I look around this church and I consider the individuals that are part of this church, you're doing the same thing in each one of our lives. You're building us at the foundational level, brick by brick, precept by precept. You're building us up. Lord, allow us to be the church that shares your love to us. Allow us to be people who are so in love with you that it changes the world around us. And Lord, we just come to you right now and we say if there's anything in us as individuals, if there's anything in this church that needs to be changed to become that church, Lord, just change it. Help us change it. Remove it from us. Some of us have been following Jesus for a long time. We may be coming to this realization that we've stopped following Him and we've started to follow other things. We've started to follow tradition. We've started to follow doctrine. We've started to, to just always have to be right. And I think the Lord is here to bring some healing. There's others of us here who really understand that letter to the the church in Smyrna. I mean, life has not been easy. Life has been hard. You feel like you're living out the story of Job. The Lord is here. He hasn't left. He hasn't forsaken. He wants to minister to you. So if that's where you're at, I just want to invite you up as well. And if you're somewhere between and you just need prayer, then come. Come and get prayer. So as we do a final song of worship, just feel free to come up in prayer.
Or, 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 or